As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with both of my co-hosts this week, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Yeah, welcome back, Bill. And also, Alex Lawson. Hey, everyone. How we doing? Uh, doing great to have a full compliment today. I yeah. know that um, there's also a lot to cover in today's show and a good conversation you had with our sister podcast host, Natalie Rodriguez. Yeah, I, ch- I chatted with Natalie a little bit about the pay wars that are going on at the big elite law firms in this country right this moment. And, uh, you know, people are getting $200,000 right out of law school, which is a nice chunk of change. A lot Sick. of bonuses. Excuse being... me while I go quit this job <laughs> yeah, and wow. go back to the law. <laughs> I've made um, some missteps. But Natalie and I had a very interesting conversation about why that's happening, some of the strange things that have happened during the pandemic, and what the factors are that are driving this um, this this rise in, in uh, pay. So um, very interesting stuff. But before we get to that, we had a very, very busy day at the Supreme Court. We are yeah. getting closer and closer to to the end of the term, although not there yet. I I talked to you guys about this today, and I haven't been I haven't been closely watching the Supreme Court this year, just because my big case was about two months ago, and <laughs> I was I was happy to take a little breather. But um, Bill uh, lacks object permanence. When the thing that he is <laughs> that he is worried about is done, it's over. No, there's lots of lots of outstanding cases left, including like, two that yeah, came like, down today. Like fourteen something cases yeah, we're still yeah. waiting on, but um, but yeah, we got two big ones today. Uh, major cases on hot button issues. One was on um, uh, Obamacare, and the other was on gay rights and religious freedom. So I thought we would run through both, get everyone quickly up to speed on what happened. Yeah, let's start with Obamacare. Uh, feel like we've been to this rodeo at the Supreme Court before, but what aspect was in play here? We have. I do. I remember the the day that the 2012 Obamacare yeah. ruling came out uh, at the Law 360 offices. It was like the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. It was just everybody was real glued to their desks. Um, but as I, uh, you know, as I said just now, um, this was the the third major Supreme Court challenge to the Affordable Care Act, which was President Obama's signature policy achievement. Um, the big ruling, as I said, came in 2012. The high court ruled that the law's penalty for individuals um, who refused to get insurance, um, the so-called individual mandate, the court ruled that that was a tax, meaning that Congress had the constitutional power to levy it. Um, this case tried to use that ruling as ammo to once again strike down the law. In 2017, Congress eliminated the monetary penalty for not getting insurance. Um, so these plaintiffs... Uh, 18 Republican-led states plus two individuals, they argued that when Congress removed the penalty, um, it, it meant that this was that the mandate was no longer a tax, meaning that um, there was no longer the justification that the court had cited back in that 2012 ruling, yep. and thus it was unconstitutional. A lower court not only sided with that argument, but they also said fairly controversially that the entire law was thus invalid. They refused to sever that portion from it. 
they said that the entire law had to be struck down because of that one sort of constitutional infirmity. Yeah, this uh, this case led to uh, led to a pretty notable spike in the use of the word severability. That was a real buzzword there for a while when this got argued. Um, but we did, like you say, we did get a ruling today. Um, obviously, the stakes are very high given the scope of this healthcare law. What did the high court have to say about it? The stakes were very high, but the ruling was very, very narrow. Um, by by a seven to two vote, the court rejected the case, but they avoided the big question: that idea of what happens to the mandate now, constitutionally, mm-hmm. now that there's no longer this penalty. Instead, they simply ruled that the plaintiffs in this case did not have standing to bring it because they couldn't show that they had suffered the kind of direct injury that you need to get into a courtroom. Um, The ruling was penned by Justice Breyer, who was joined by everyone with the exception of Justices Alito and Gorsuch. Um, That, of course, included Justice Clarence Thomas, who voted against the law the last two times it was before the court. He penned a concurrence that stressed that he still really, really, really does not like the ACA or the earlier (laughs) rulings in its favor, but that here he, you know, that this standing issue would have caused a lot of problems if it had gone the other way. The quote, Whatever the act's dubious history in this court, we must assess the current suit on its own terms. And here, there is a fundamental problem with the arguments advanced by the plaintiffs in attacking the act. They have not identified any unlawful action that has injured them. ACA, 3-0 and at the high court. Uh, so there you go. Um, next one, I know you wanted to talk about, uh, you mentioned there was a pretty big uh, gay rights case. What, uh, what, was the, what was the issue here? What were they, what were they grappling with? Right. The two sides of the coin is that it was a gay rights case, also a religious freedom case. Yes. Um, So at at issue here was the foster care system in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that city. I'm Uh, I'm vaguely aware of it. Yeah. A couple of good, frustrating (laughs) sports teams from there. Great Um, mascots, though. Sure. Uh, So the foster care system in Philadelphia stopped using one particular foster agency that was the catholic social services uh was the name of the group um they discovered that the group which the name implies is a catholic foster agency um was not certifying same-sex couples to be foster parents the city has a rule that that when they contract that the the, they have an anti-discrimination rule and um they said that this group ran afoul of that so the group sued, uh, arguing that the policy, that this rule violated the First Amendment, um, the the more specifically the First Amendment's ex, uh, protections on the free exercise of religion. The group said its religious beliefs were why it had refused to certify these couples, and so that the government forcing them to do so was unconstitutional. I can certainly see why this one was closely watched, because the clash of First Amendment and discrimination laws a really interesting one. So where'd the court land here? Yeah, we had um uh Masterpiece Cake Shop a couple years ago, which yes. was the um the you know, one of the big cases that year. So this kind of stuff does always draw eyeballs. Um but by a unanimous vote today, the justices ruled that um uh Philadelphia had indeed violated the Constitution's guarantee of religious freedom. The actual majority here was written it was by the chief justice on behalf of a six justice block the vote to strike it down was unanimous we're not going to get into that yeah um uh, but in terms of the 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 um you know the reasoning of the ruling so the court the high court had previously held that anti-discrimination policies like the one imposed by philadelphia are subject only to pretty light constitutional scrutiny so long as they are the the term of art here is generally applicable yeah 
Roberts wrote here that this rule was not generally applicable because the city had offered exemptions to other agencies from this rule. Um, and they had not offered one. They had not made that same exemption to uh, this group, to uh, Catholic Social Services. So that subjected this this restriction to tougher constitutional scrutiny. And under that rubric, this did not pass muster under the First Amendment, according to the high court. Here's the quote. As Philadelphia acknowledges, CSS has long been a point of light in the city's foster care system. CSS seeks only an accommodation that will allow it to continue serving the children of Philadelphia in a manner consistent with its religious beliefs. It does not seek to impose those beliefs on anyone else. So, um, you know, a a big hot button case resolved. We are still waiting on a few more. Uh, we will keep everyone posted. Our our sister show, The Term, will be following all of this stuff super closely. But um, uh, yeah, The Term is 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 nearing its end, and we are we are getting the big cases. All right. Thanks so much, Bill. Uh, The other big piece of news we wanted to get to, you guys aren't going to believe this, still more COVID news to talk about. I know. What? Um, Yeah, I know. Uh, A huge, uh, there's lots of different, uh, as the the COVID-19 vaccines um, are rolled out and a um, not insignificantly sized slice of the population is reluctant to receive them, that dynamic is creating a lot of a lot of sort of thorny legal issues. And one of the main ones that's on people's mind is the, this question of whether or not your employer can require you to receive the shot as a condition of uh, going into the office. Now, uh, last week, late last week, we got the nation's uh, first federal ruling on this question as a judge in Texas pretty cleanly struck down a lawsuit from over 100 workers um, challenging a Houston hospital's uh, vaccine mandate. So, The court upholds the vaccine requirement, and the judge went so far as to call a lot of the plaintiff's arguments and general vaccine skepticism uh, reprehensible. Um, It was a a short ruling, um, but quite a pointed one. I think for a lot of um, employment law nerds like I am, this is what uh, people would have expected would be the outcome, because there have been cases about other types of vaccines. Yeah. But still, applying it to a novel virus and a very novel technology that created the current vaccines... There was an open question of whether or not courts would take that into account. So I really want to hear sort of the breakdown of exactly what was argued in this case. Yeah. And when you consider the the, the sort of once in a generation nature of this thing we that we are hopefully coming out of the uh, coming out of. Um, we hope once in a generation. We hope. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, <laughs> Fingers uh, crossed to everyone. It's kind of what the vaccine's all about. Um, but in any case, this suit that we're talking about today was filed in late May by uh, medical workers at Houston Methodist Hospital. Now, the complaint itself was uh, fairly, uh, I'll say charged. Um, It likened the hospital's vaccine requirement uh, to, it basically called it coercion and uh, treated the staff like, uh, there's a quote from the complaint, human guinea pigs. Um, And it even accused the hospital of violating the Nuremberg Code of 1947. And if you don't know what that is, Uh, That is the sort of medical ethics code that was developed after World War II uh, in the wake of Nazi uh, experiments on Jews during the Holocaust. Um, So they didn't really pull a lot of punches here filing this case. Um, We'll we'll get to that in a second. The judge uh, did not let that go unremarked upon. Uh, They claimed these workers claimed that the not only that the vaccine mandate is inconsistent with public policy, but also that it would. force them into being, you know, test subjects for what they considered an, an unsafe vaccine, and it would lead to wrongful termination suits if they were fired uh, for not taking the vaccine. As you read 
that reference to the Nuremberg Code, I was making a, a gym face from The Office. Yeah, I was, he was. <laughs> I was confused. Um, <laughs> and it seems like the judge was confused. So yes. tell us what the judge said here about this lawsuit. Yeah. Um, now, for such a for such a pressing question that everybody was eager to see how it would be resolved, um, and the stakes are obviously extremely high, it was all resolved pretty quickly. Like I say, it was filed in the suit was filed in late May. They had arguments on Friday, and it was dismissed on Saturday, uh, where the Texas judge Lynn Hughes, uh, who we've talked about on the show before, uh, summarily dismissed the workers' complaint. Um, the judge really ripped into uh, the he basically said the workers were wrong on both factual and legal grounds um, and really didn't appreciate their general uh, skepticism about the nature of the vaccines. Um, Judge Hughes, he wrote uh, he was writing here about the lead plaintiff, a woman named Jennifer Bridges. He wrote um, that Bridges, quote, dedicates the bulk of her pleadings to arguing that the currently available COVID-19 vaccines are experimental and dangerous. This claim is false and it's also irrelevant, uh, which I which is just sort of cleanly dispensing with the, the sort of rhetoric there. He kind of he he also cast aside these wrongful termination claims or saying that wrongful terminations would ensue if they were fired. He says Texas law only applies wrongful termination when workers are asked to commit an illegal act. Uh, receiving a vaccine is not that, as I think we all can understand. And uh, circling back, as you can guess, he was not a fan of um, the whole Nazi thing, uh, to put it uh, to put it lightly. Here was the quote on that. Uh, quote, equating the injection requirement to medical experimentation in concentration camps is reprehensible. Nazi doctors conducted medical experiments on victims that caused pain, mutilation, permanent disability, and in many cases, death. A little history lesson from the judge there. Godwin's uh, Bill- law says that any time someone invokes the Nazis, you have invariably lost the argument. Yes, that's that's true. Um so he also did not buy into this coercion argument, this idea that they are uh, being being forced to take this vaccine in an illegal fashion. Here was the uh, the quote uh, again. He's writing about the about the lead plaintiff here. Although her claims fail as a matter of law, it is also necessary to clarify that Bridges has not been coerced. Bridges says that she is being forced to be injected with a vaccine or be fired. This is not coercion. Bridges can choose to accept or refuse a COVID-19 vaccine. However, if she refuses, she will simply need to work somewhere else. Um, So, like I say, it was a short ruling. It was only five pages. Didn't get too deep into the employment law questions, which was somewhat interesting. We'll talk about some other cases where this might bubble up again. Um, But uh, the judge did nod to uh, guidance that was issued a few weeks ago from the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that said that employers can legally impose a COVID-19 vaccine mandate so long as they are uh, accommodating or potentially exempting people with valid religious or medical reasons for not getting it. So, um, in the eyes of this judge, um, like I said, it was, it was the first federal ruling on this question. The COVID-19 vaccine mandates for employers um, are above board. Yeah, I am actually not super surprised that we got both a quick ruling because time is of the essence for these things right now. Um, but also one that, like you said, doesn't really have to delve too hard into the employment law question itself because mm-hmm. it just seems pretty clear. Um, yeah. You know, at least in the eyes of this judge, it yeah. f- follows old precedents about things like flu shots. Yep. But 
What are sort of outstanding things? I know this will not be the last we hear of this type of case. Yeah. Well, for one thing, the plaintiff's attorney in this case, this Houston case, did vow to appeal and he gave the stock line that a lot of sort of very forceful plaintiff's attorneys say will take it all the way to all the way to the Supreme Court if need be. Um, So keep our eyes on this. We'll see uh, if that appeal gets traction. There are also a number of other legal battles around this question that are simmering in courts around the country. And I would um, definitely recommend everyone check out our friend Vin Guerreri's coverage on this. He had a piece last week that ran down. I think there was four of them that he highlighted. Um, There was a case um, in L.A. that was filed by public school teachers, very similar to the Houston workers, also references the Nuremberg Code. Um, So I don't know if there's a there's a memo going around about how to challenge this. Um, There was also a suit filed by a New York uh, waiter, uh, which squares up a religious objection to his employer's vaccine mandate. So this will percolate in a couple of different contexts. Contexts and a couple of different courts. Uh, so there's certainly lots to watch for on this front. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. The law firm of Davis Polk announced last week that it would start paying attorneys who are fresh out of law school $202,000 a year. Yes, you heard me right. And they're one of many large law firms that have seriously bumped up compensation over the past year. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we just have a global pandemic and a recession? So what on earth is going on here? To break it all down, we're joined this week by Natalie Rodriguez, Law360's assistant managing editor for our legal industry team and the host of our sister podcast, The Term. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks for having me, Bill. Happy to have you back. It's been a little while. I know, but I'm so excited, as always, to talk about money and law firms. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned at the sort of the outset of my intro that, um, you know, Davis Polk was one of these big uh, firms that that announced. But, um, you know, for anyone who hasn't been following along closely, could you m- maybe start us off by breaking down what's been happening over the last year at these elite law firms in terms of um, these these raises and these bonuses, everything that's been going on? Yeah. So, I mean, the very simple take is they're just stumbling over each other to like pile money on top of associates. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so it started last year. We saw, you know, some special bonuses called uh, we, we kind of dubbed them COVID bonuses for all the hard work that associates were and have been doing um, for the last, you know, well over a year plus of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, starting Earlier this year, we started seeing uh, more of those bonuses. Specifically, we started seeing special spring and fall bonuses being announced also by Davis Polk. Uh, and, and this was kind of to the tune of about 12000 to $64,000 in bonuses split between like the two spring and, bo- and fall uh, breakdowns. Um, we've at over at the Law360 Pulse, we've been kind of keeping a tracker. I think we have something like 75 firms that have announced bonuses like this. Sure. Um, and this does not include end-of-year bonuses that most firms are still planning. So there were the bonuses. And then we started seeing lots of, a couple of firms, actually, I should say. We started seeing a couple of firms, um, you know, putting in play 
new associate pay scales that basically standardize what we would call the New York pay scale. Mm-hmm. You know, one hundred and ninety thousand starting salary plus, but for all regions because you know post pandemic world. A lot of associates are remote, working from wherever and doing the same kind of work that their New York associates might have been. So we saw that. And then actually came Millbank. Millbank came with um, a new associate pay scale on June 10th uh, that raised their starting salary to 200,000. And then Davis Polk came in the next day. It was like, no, 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 no. We're raising it to (laughs) 202,500,000. Yeah, we're in we're in sort of a it, it feels like uh, almost a, a salary wars at this point between these it, it, these firms. It is essentially a salary war. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think, and this is what really interests me about this story is, you know, as I sort of glibly mentioned in my intro, you know, one could be forgiven for for thinking that a global catastrophe that we've all lived through over the last year would cause salaries to go down not up and that's something you know you saw in a lot of industries you saw people struggling during the pandemic but um you know here we are and we're having a a race to the top in terms of associate pay so what dynamics are playing out here that is driving you know this this boom what is what is causing these firms to to compete with each other this way so actually to dial back we did see pay cuts in the legal industry at the very start right a lot of firms start tightening their belts um and put to put a bunch of pay cuts in place because they were like bracing for the worst and the worst never happened. And in mm. fact, it was a really boon year for law firms last year. Many big law firms po- posted like record revenues. You know, yes, a lot of the litigation work dried up. Yes, there were issues with deals work, but all in all, there was a lot of work happening at law firms and it, you know, the pace didn't really slow down. It kind of just changed direction. Yeah. I saw one quote um, from, uh, you know, someone in a leadership position at a big law firm that was describing it as sort of like a company that builds, you know, bridges during a war. You would prefer that the war was not happening, but, um, but you know, those bridges need to get built. And it's um, so you have this, this, new environment where there are a lot of questions that lawyers need to answer. So it does make sense to a certain extent that lawyers would be in a position to make quite a bit of money during during such uncertain times. Yeah, and I think, you know, a, a big part of it is also, though, is we've, look, we're how many months now into the pandemic? 18 plus, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone's dealing with really trying work environments and lawyers and young lawyers, associates who kind of deal with the brunt work are dealing with, you know, really challenging issues in terms of just keeping up with their pace and keeping up, you know, and, and dealing with the pandemic. And what we're seeing is a lot of associate attrition at law firms, right? Yeah. And so this is the bonuses and now the the pay bumps, I think, are really an a kind of a reaction to that, to trying to keep associates who do, you know, a lot of the brunt work for for all the work that they do, you know, to keep them happy, to keep them wanting to stay, um, you know, especially at a time when work is actually starting to pick back up now that the pandemic's, right. like, you know, starting to open up the doors to, 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 to courthouses and to international travel and deals and et cetera. Yes, I would imagine that the that uh, elite law firms are dealing with something that many employers are dealing with, which is 
employees have reassessed their, you know, their relationship with the workplace. They're working remote. They are seeking more work-life balance. And so you couple that with what you just said about the, the the legal industry did particularly well during the pandemic, and suddenly you have this situation where they have lots of cash to throw around and not enough people who want to do this very, very demanding white-collar job. So now that we've sort of talked about the factors that are that are driving this, we are now entering a new phase of the pandemic, namely that it is, um, for the most part, fingers crossed, going away. We are in full reopen mode. You know, New York and, and D.C. and San Francisco and L.A., these cities are uh, where where a lot of this action is taking place. They're getting back into the swing of things. So what is the outlook for the year ahead in terms of this salary war that we're seeing? Is this going to keep going? Are we going to drop down to previous levels once it sort of resides? What, t- tell me, tell me what we we see in the months ahead. I don't think you can drop back. Like I, I, I just, you know, I, I, you can't kind of take it back after you put it out there. Um, you know, I will say we're just about a week into this kind of like great pay war of 2021 that's happening. Um, so I do think at least in the near term, we're going to be seeing a lot more firms joining onto the bandwagon. Um, Again, at Law360 Pulse, we've been kind of keeping track. Um, We had something, I think I saw a draft today, something like 10 firms announced today that they were matching Davis Polk. Uh, A couple of firms I've seen, um, including Codwallader and McDermott have, you know, they initially matched with Millbank and now they're they're upping to the Davis Polk scale. Um, So I think, you know, at least in the short term, we're going to be seeing a lot more firms kind of enter the fray, try to keep up with the Joneses in terms of associate pay. Long term, though, you know, I think we're going to start to see pushback. You know, we're going to start to see pushback from partners. We're going to start to see pushback from in-house counsel about, you know, just how much money might be kind of headed towards associates right now and might be, you know, kind of padding the bills for in-house counsel. Um, Like I said, though, I think that'll be kind of in the longer term and, and, yet to be seen exactly how that will shake out. Sure. I mean, it's a it's a unique industry to see pay raises, right? Because so much is directly billed to the client. So we will see if uh, any of these, uh, you know, this this largesse on the part of these these firms, whether that, um, you know, whether that starts to, as you said, you know, start to start to rankle the clients. It'll be very interesting to see. Um well, Natalie, uh, we, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. It's very interesting. Uh, it's, it's a lot of money. Um, we're very happy for all you uh, big law associates out there. Things are, It's been a good week for you, hopefully. Um, it's been a good good year for you guys. Yeah, Congratulations. exactly. Um, all right. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Our show is something offbeat. And guys, I've got one that I want to talk about that sort of falls into a bucket we've covered before, which is things have been going wrong in virtual court proceedings. I, well, I, won't, miss, <laughs> I won't miss much about the pandemic, but I will miss like 
guy is accidentally <laughs> smoking meth in the background of a court hearing as a, say, yeah. a steady supply boy, of oh offbeat segments. Boy, will you love this story then. Yeah, well, I was going to say, we're, like, we're, we're, we're in the dying light of like wacky Zoom court stories, and this is uh, <laughs> quite a humdinger, so tell well, us about it. I will tell you this. Um, this does raise questions of, are we in the dying light of those stories? Yeah, maybe. Or I don't are know. are they going to adopt, uh, are courts across the nation going to see how well Zoom worked and want to do some of these even when we get back to some more normal lifestyle? Not if it goes um, like this. We'll see. But, uh, that's, yeah. that, that's just a guess. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me tell you what happened. So um, this is an example out of jury selection in a trial in Houston. Prospective jurors for an asbestos trial were being were seen doing a ton of stuff you just don't want jurors to be doing during voir dire. Um, and it's all because they were on Zoom and I guess felt freer than they would in a courtroom. And it actually is being challenged in a unique way. It led attorneys in an unrelated $100 million personal injury lawsuit for a company called Allied Aviation Fueling Company. They were set to appear before the same judge for their trial and they used this example of this terrible circus um, to argue to the Texas Supreme Court that judges shouldn't be forcing parties into remote trials. Uh, what kind of stuff were they doing? I've got a long list here, okay. and you guys can tell me what you find. I mean, I mean, egregious. a circus is 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 not a meaningless word. Uh, so <laughs> sure, it's I, not. were I they would... <laughs> were they juggling? Were they uh, swallowing fire? I think it's close enough. I want you guys to tell me what you find the most um, troubling okay. out of these behaviors. Okay. Rattle them off. Yeah. They, they were sleeping, driving okay. cars, disappearing off camera, applying makeup, playing video games while wearing a gaming headset, <laughs> preparing and eating meals, watching TV, playing with pets, lying in bed and on a couch, drinking alcohol and vaping during questioning. I love the idea of playing video games, just being like, hey, no, 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 go over there, go over there. <laughs> What's that your... one's pretty good. <laughs> I think my personal one that really gets me is vaping during questioning is pretty yeah. Bold well, that's choice. that's that's an alpha move. I mean, you can't let these. I mean, you got to let these attorneys who are asking you about you know mesothelioma and all this other stuff. You're like, look, I vape. So what? What are you? What are you going to do? Kick me off this jury? And I'm in my house, bro. What? What? Like what? I also really questioned the applying makeup one because I mean, you're oh, already yeah. on the Zoom. Like people can see. Like what are you? What are you changing it up for? Um, okay, so the lawyers in the personal injury suit, um, that's the, the unrelated one that they don't want this kind of wadir in their instance. They watched this Zoom video that was actually made available by the court. That's how they kind of got involved here and decided to make the motion that they did. So then they went and told the Texas Supreme Court that what they saw, quote, looked nothing like the serious substantive endeavor expected of jury trials in which significant property interests are at stake. I mean, uh, everyone does hate jury duty, and yes, you know, there's a million stories about people trying to get out of it by being disagreeable or espousing <laughs> bad views or whatever. So I guess it sort of makes sense that people thought maybe if I vape on camera, I'll get released. I think it's also uh, the thing where if you're a little bored waiting for your turn for stuff, I can totally imagine like... There were things in there like watching TV or like lounging on your couch. I can see how you'd be really tempted to do that. Driving? Yeah. Driving is a different one? I don't know. It yeah. seems like we're getting real extreme here. I had a, I had an attorney who was a, a trial attorney once told me that, that voir dire was just was really at its most basic level an exercise in spotting the weirdos. And yeah. depending <laughs> on the case, 
you either want the weirdos or you don't, depending on what you're trying to argue or prove or something. Um, and, what happens uh, when they're all weirdos, Alex? Well, as I'm saying, I mean, this just lowers the, I mean, you know, some people might not show up, uh, you know, this, this just lowers the barrier for people to exhibit, um, you know, weird behaviors, strange behaviors. So. Okay. So this company that doesn't want their own Zoom circus um, yeah. in an affidavit that they filed with the Texas Supreme Court, they said this the Harris County district judge, her name's um, Deidre Davis, Mm -hmm. at one point noticed these potential jurors doing this weird stuff. And one in particular was applying false eyelashes. And the judge allegedly said to the woman, quote, a girl's got to do what a girl's got to (laughs) do. Was she wearing a Princess Leia costume at the time? Do we know? Well, here's the thing. We've heard so many stories and talked about them on this show in this very segment about judges being really mad. And like yelling at attorneys, yelling at people for having dumb names entered into their Zoom account when they appear, all this sort of stuff. Sure, This judge took the opposite tact. She was just like, girls got to do what a girl's got to do. I'd be curious to know, you know, the extent to which all this stuff, I'd I'd love to see some videos and see it all in context, because clearly I'm not questioning the veracity of these arguments but you know these are arguments from one party so i would be interested to see you know to to the extent to which this this all went down quite this way uh because clearly these people do not want a a zoom trial or a zoom voir dire so just just food for thought you do bring up a good point and in the interest of fairness that is exactly right these are allegations they are based on a zoom video so in theory you know they could be watched back to to pair up the veracity there um, mm-hmm. the co- the high court is considering whether or not to allow this demand for an in-person trial. It's put a stay on the Zoom proceeding for now and is going to fully consider it and then we'll see what happens. Um, obviously, the other side has said, hey, um, not all Zoom trials are like this. This is an outlier example. We think we could still do it, but also we'll do in-person too. In whatever way, we just want this trial to proceed and not get bogged down in delays. So it looks like we'll get individual resolution here. But I think the bigger question remains with, as courts consider what parts of technology to retain as we move out of the pandemic, where do we draw the lines? Is it all going to be a Zoom circus? Or are there some things where we we can wrangle them in a way that makes it useful and makes justice speedier? And this raises a lot of red flags and questions. Yeah, the vapors and gamers and uh, makeup appliers of uh, the nation are on notice, uh, I think. Firmly yeah, here. they might ruin Zoom jury duty for everyone. <laughs> so they need to knock it off. In addition to all the other uh. things that are being ruined. Yes, of course. <laughs> Thanks for being with me on today's show, guys. Uh, appreciate it, Bill. See you next week, guys. And also, Alex. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guests this week, Natalie Rodriguez, and our contributing reporters, Clark Mendock, Michelle Cassidy, Abra Coe, and Max Yeager. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, it really helps other people find our show when you leave a written review and five stars wherever you're listening. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.